Hi, everybody. I'm Annie Simons. I'm Keegan Daly. And this is the Limelight Falcon movie podcast. Sadly, Mason is not with us today, but we have a very special guest, Professor Jeffrey Overstreet. It is a privilege to be here. Thank you for joining us. You picked one of my favorite subjects. This is going to be a blast. So today we are talking about film adaptations of books. Keegan, do you want to get us started? Do you have a specific book that you really like the film adaptation of? Or what are your thoughts on this topic? This was a difficult one for me to think about because especially these last few years being a college student, I haven't really had a lot of time to read books for pleasure. It's mostly a textbook here and a textbook there. But one book that I've recently, like I've literally just started getting into is Mildred Pierce because I really, really love the Joan Crawford film, the 1945 Joan Crawford film. And so I'm starting to read Mildred Pierce and I like it so far. It was kind of a backwards thing for me where I watched the movie first and then I decided to read the book. And that's often how things start for me. Like I want to watch The Postman Always Rings twice and then I want to read the book. Recently, because I really like 1940s film noir, I've been wanting to read a lot of James M. Cain books because a lot of those movies come from his collection of novels that he's written. So it's funny to me because a lot of people, you know, they're always like, oh, the book is so much better than the movie and the movie didn't do the book justice. And so it's interesting to go from the other perspective, seeing how the book originated the ideas and how the movies evolved off of those ideas or how they made them better or kept them the same or completely rearranged their ideas. So it's been interesting to do it kind of the other way around. It's fascinating to see the filmmaker's perspective on the story, you know, because the author has their own perspective. I mean, the thing that comes to mind, which is not a film, but it's Handmaid's Tale, which is a Margaret Atwood book. It's also a Hulu show and how the first season really follows the the first book in the series. But after the first season, they kind of go off in their own little adventure in terms of the plot. And so it's been really interesting to see how they evolve from the original story. And in that way, like they keep the same core ideas, which I think is really impactful. But it's also important for the filmmaker to put in their own perspective. It's their film as much as it is the author's book. I haven't read Mildred Pierce. I have never seen the classic film. I have never seen the miniseries with Kate Winslet, uh, which I've heard good things about as well. Yeah, that was another thing I was looking to look into because there is a miniseries and I haven't seen that either. Yeah, I got very good reviews and it was directed by Todd Haynes, who directed Carol and so many great, great films. I'd love to hear what the two of you think about those difficult questions that come up over and over again with adaptations. You know, I mean, there are those that stick to the book, like the whole book. There are those that stick to the book, but abridge the book significantly. There are those that are based on the book, but take all kinds of liberties. There are those that subvert the book and end up actively kind of arguing with it. That's a really hard question to answer, just because... Like if I'm reading a book that I really enjoy and I know it has been turned into a movie or it's going to be, part of my thinking is, oh, I want it to stay true to the novel because that's what I've learned to love. But I also feel like the creativity that a filmmaker can bring into the process and writers can bring into the process and the actors as well also can make the experience even more enjoyable and even make the experience better. And so I I don't know if I have a clear answer. When I thought of film adaptations of books, my first thought was Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief, because when I was like in fourth or fifth grade, I'd watch the movie in theaters. And then I read the book. And I remember the book being very different, but me enjoying the book a lot more. And again, so it was that backwards thing, but I really, really enjoyed the book a lot more. And then I got to like, kind of pick apart the flaws of the movie. And a lot of those flaws came from the fact that they were 
quite different from each other. And I, I don't think that the film necessarily did the book justice. And so I might lean more towards the side of being more similar to the book if I really, really love the book. If I feel like there's room for improvement and I think I could see that in the film, that might be something that I would take into account. Yeah, I think for me, I think it definitely depends on the genre of the film or the book, you know, what it's based on. I mean, if we're going to look at film versions of books, I think that Harry Potter is one of the ones that will come to mind for most people or other, you know, movie series or book series like that. It's very difficult when you turn a book series into a film, because especially with the Harry Potter books, I mean, those books are so detailed. And they're so long. And if you made a movie that was 100% true to that source material, it would be 20 hours long. <laughs> and no one's going to sit through a 20 hour long movie. So I think when it comes to books like that, that you want to make into films, you really have to be, you kind of have to cut your losses, I guess, and think about, you know, what's super important. What can we maybe leave out? Are there certain characters that are highlighted in the books but might not work very well with the direction that we're going with this movie. I know that one of my biggest frustrations with Harry Potter is the fact that Peeves isn't in the movies. <laughs> and he's this mischievous ghost that kind of lives in the castle and he pulls tricks on the students. And I loved reading about him in the, in the book, but he wasn't in the movie and that made me sad. But it's because he's not absolutely crucial to the plot and kind of the main narrative of the Harry Potter story. So it was, you know, I was bummed that I couldn't see that in the movie, but I understand just because taking on a series like Harry Potter and trying to turn that into, you know, several movies is such a daunting task. And you really do, I mean, the filmmakers need to be strategic with what they're gonna include and what they're gonna leave out. Yeah, I've been wrestling with that question since a very young age because I, I loved reading uh, Winnie the Pooh when I was a little kid. I would see these excerpts or these individual stories from what became the Disney sort of collection movie called The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. I would see those on Sunday night on this show called The Wonderful World of Disney. You know, I, I think it registered with me that there were differences between the stories and that there were characters in the Disney movies that were not in the story, not in the original stories, like like Gopher, for example. Um, but the spirit of those stories was fairly well honored. The stories are much more philosophical, I think. The Disney version is much cuter, and I think sort of designed to sell toys. Still, there's a very there's a gentleness uh, in those Winnie the Pooh, those early Winnie the Pooh cartoons that Disney did, and the the voice casting is so good that the I I always hear those voices when I read the original stories now. That was when I was, you know, five or six. I was, I think I was seven when Rankin Bass, this team of largely uh, Japanese animators, adapted The Hobbit to the uh, an animated version. And then those animators would later become Studio Ghibli, do all the Miyazaki films. And so sometimes I'm watching a, a, a Miyazaki film, like particularly Spirited Away, and I'll see a face that looks so much, it has to have been one of the same animators. I'll see a face that looks just like one of the wood elves or something from this original Hobbit animated version. That version of the Hobbit, the late seventies version of the Hobbit is a treasure to me because it, you can tell the movie loves the story and that each character has been crafted to sort of honor the character in the book. And it doesn't diverge much from the book, although it abridges things considerably to fit it in a neat, however long that movie is. It's just over an hour, I think. Uh, when you think about what Peter Jackson did with The Hobbit, 
just expanding and expanding and expanding it to try to one up what he'd already done, that may make for some exciting movie making, but it's a total betrayal of the book. The central character of Bilbo is not the same character. He keeps learning how to be brave and fight the enemy in battle. And in the book, he's horrified by battles. He, he becomes the still small voice of conscience that eventually exposes the absurdity of the battles. And then there's so many just sort of formulaic subplots that, that Jackson stuffed in. Those, those movies really feel like what can go wrong. But then around the same time, let's see, I guess it was when I turned 10, I read Watership Down for the first time. And very soon after that, saw the, the film adaptation. And that is a brutal, dark, difficult fantasy novel for adults. And the animated movie come out, came out and everybody thought, oh, we'll take our kids to this, you know, and, and so you have generations of children traumatized by that movie. That was a life-changing experience for me at 10, 11 years old to see that because it introduced me to a much more realistic view of what the, the world outside is really like. It was one of the first war stories I'd ever heard, even though it's about rabbits. And the animation did not need to make the characters silly for them to be engaging. The animation is beautifully faithful to what rabbits look like and how they move and how they interact. The animators studied rabbits forever. So it, I, I feel like that story actually took place. A lot of that has to do with the author who studied rabbits and then these animators who, who worked to celebrate that and to honor that. So the questions that always come up for me are, does the movie respect its source material? Not does it stuff everything into the movie, even though that I know that's going to hurt Annie's feelings sometimes. First of all, does it stand up as a good movie? And to, in order to do that, you're probably going to have to cut quite a bit from a novel. Um, otherwise, it's just going to be busy and it's going to suffer by leaning into fan service too much. But then after the question of is it a, is it a good movie, does it respect the source materi material? And if it doesn't, does it disrespect it in a meaningful, worthwhile way? Does it subvert the source material in a meaningful, worthwhile way? And th those kinds of movies are few and far between. I've seen so many that have broken my heart uh, where it just felt like the filmmakers had a good property, a popular property, and used it to do whatever they want. One, one example, The Tale of Despero, which is a gorgeous book and a ridiculous movie. Books where the filmmakers saw that a story could be so much more and made something even better about it without ever disrespecting the source material, like Where the Wild Things Are which is this magnificent picture book, you know, full of incredible rhymes and, and it's just a joy for small children. But then you watch the movie and they've layered it with this far more interesting, sophisticated narrative. They've developed these characters and they've made it into a celebration of the themes of the book, but for adults, almost as if the movie is meant to remind adults of what was meaningful about this book when they were kids because they need that now. That's extraordinary. And then there are the movies that, that try to do the whole book. Um, and some of the Harry Potter movies are, are pretty guilty of that, I think. I talked about this movie last week, but Whisper of the Heart is my favorite movie. And originally it was a movie. Oh, wow. What a great film. Oh, it's so good, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you agree. It was a manga originally, and my, I hadn't read it. It's kind of hard to get in America. My brother, who lived in Japan, bought it for me in Japan and then shipped it to me for Christmas one year. So I have the manga, and when I read it, it was interesting because a lot of those pictures in the manga are like shot for shot the same or in the movie. A few plot things are different, but it was interesting how much the Studio Ghibli like filmmakers wanted to respect the novel and almost keep things shot for shot the same. And I thought it was a really nice 
I'm saying callback because I watched the movie first, but it's like a really nice callback to the film and like vice versa. And I think that that made me feel all warm and snuggly inside because I fallen in love with that movie and I used to watch it every single day. And so, and another thing that I, is it Tales from Earthsea? The Ghibli, I think it's Goro Miyazaki, uh, Miyazaki's son yes. directed it. Is it like three books that he crammed into one movie or something? There are quite a few see books. I forget how many. But he like crammed them all into this one feature length film and it was messy and people really didn't like it. And Including his father, exactly. by the way. Oh, yeah. Could you imagine? <laughs> Could you imagine pouring your heart and soul? I mean, regardless if the film is bad or not, whatever. But I'm just saying that would crush me. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm glad you brought up Whisper of the Heart. I mean, I hadn't thought about that as an adaptation because I've, I've never looked at the book, the manga. It's also a movie about writing, and there aren't many movies, especially movies that younger audiences can enjoy, that, that do a good job capturing what really goes into writing a story and, and the value of criticism, too. I mean, the fact that the character, it's not a Disney movie where a character writes a book and becomes a bestseller and then she lives happily ever after, right? Writing becomes a process of growth. I hadn't seen that until it came back to theaters, I think, two years ago. Uh, and that was the first time I'd seen it. I'm like, wow, I thought I had seen all the great Studio Ghibli films, but apparently I hadn't. Andy and I were talking about it last week for our animation episode. I think the film adaptation of that manga is really, really fantastic. It's a good example of something that really takes the story to heart. Yeah, I think if we're talking about movies that celebrate the creative process of writing and what it takes to create pieces of writing, I don't think I can let this conversation go by without bringing up Greta Gerwig's Little Women. I was hoping we go there. Good. Yeah, yeah. Her 2019 version of the film. I think that's my favorite version of the Little Women film. I do love the Winona Ryder version. I mean, we were talking earlier about how if you're going to stray from the source material, it has to be in a respectful way and in a way that honors the original work without recreating it in a way that isn't true to the book. And I thought that the way that Greta Gerwig directed Little Women and even wrote Little Women, I mean, that screenplay is gorgeous. But I, I think that the way that she kind of broke the story into pieces and decided to tell it in a way that kind of weaved the stories together, then they didn't necessarily happen in chronological order. I thought her choice to do that was actually a really, really good one because it just added different layers to the characters that you don't see in other versions of the movie. I loved seeing Joe and Lori's friendship develop more in Greta Gerwig's film than it does in other film versions. I think that Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet, I mean, they're great friends in real life and it was wonderful to watch them create that friendship on screen as, as Joe and Lori. Watching Joe kind of struggle with her writing and worry about, you know, compromising her morals if she writes under a man's name or if she writes something that she doesn't necessarily feel an emotional connection to and then ultimately deciding to write her story about her and her sisters. I think watching her go through that process in a way that isn't chronological but is, I guess, a more complete telling of her story is really, really beautiful. And I have to have to tip my cap to Greta Gerwig for that one because I think her creative choices and her personal writing process is one to be honored and admired for sure. 
So now it's time for the part of the podcast where we talk about our weekly what to watch. It's our weekly film recommendations. So Annie, what is your weekly what to watch this week? So this week I am recommending to you all the 1973 film adaptation of the book Charlotte's Web. Charlotte's Web is one of my favorite books from my childhood. It was a book that was read to me and my siblings every night before we went to sleep. You know, we'd read a chapter every night. Each of the characters comes to life in a way that's very faithful. It's just a wonderful adaptation of that book. Enjoy it as a college student. I enjoyed it as a child. I think that it's one of those timeless classics that everyone will enjoy and appreciate no matter how old you are. And it's also very faithful to the book. Mine is 1951's A Place in the Sun, directed by George Stevens. It is my favorite Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor film. Their chemistry is like nothing else in the entire world. If you know me personally, you know I'm a huge Monty Clift fan and I will give any excuse to talk about him. But um, the book is actually based on a book called An American Tragedy, which was based on a real life murder in like, I think the 1910s. It was turned into a book and then it was turned into a movie called American Tragedy and that movie failed at the box office. And then it was turned into A Place in the Sun in 51. And I think it really found its footing kind of straying away from the book a little bit and kind of making place for its own like identity. And I think it does a really, really good job at not only taking aspects from the book, but also creating a new identity for itself. And I think that Monty gives one of his best acting performances, especially in like the early parts of his career. And it's Liz Taylor's kind of debut as a more of an adult actress. You know, she was in Lassie and Little Women. She does a marvelous job as Angela Vickers in that film as well. And Shelley Winters gives a really great performance as Alice Tripp. You know, R.E.M. has a great song about Montgomery Clift. The one I'm going to recommend is because right now it's in theaters and I'm trying to get people to go back to theaters. It's a strange thing to take a nonfiction book, socioeconomic study of a sort of fringe population in the United States and turn it into a deeply moving, poetic, cinematic masterpiece. And that's what Nomadland is. I'm really rooting for it at the Oscars. Yeah, and I, I, I hesitate to say that because Minari is directed by a dear friend of mine. And I'm so sentimentally, I'm really hoping Minari wins. Nomadland is, is so beautiful. And it's, it's a story told with such compassion for people who, for various reasons, are living sort of uh, off the grid in you know the, the famous Saturday Night Live punchline, in a van down by the river. But seriously, people who who live out of their vehicles and move from terrible job to terrible job trying to get by, but just refusing to, for various reasons, to, they see it as compromise to rejoin traditional uh, American consumer society. Francis McDormand has been one of my favorite actors since Raising Arizona. Well, no, since before that, since Blood Simple. I think this is her best performance. She creates such a layered, nuanced, wounded, but sincere and loving character. And then she's surrounded by people who are playing themselves, by non-professional actors who really do live this life. And it captures sort of what's left of the natural beauty of America in a way that few films have. I thought it was just breathtaking on a big screen. So I really hope people will go see that and see how you can take a study, how you can take a nonfiction book and honor what the heart of the study was, what the concerns of the writer were. And bring it to life in, a, in, in as a compelling narrative. So go see Nomadland and Minari, but go see Nomadland. Let's do it again sometime. This was fun. Yeah, let's do it again, definitely. It was a blast, thanks. 
Well, that about wraps up our time for today's episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'm Keegan Daly. I'm Annie Simons, and we just want to thank you for listening to the Limelight Falcon Movie Podcast, and we will catch you on our next episode.